Welcome back to Killer Fun. I'm Christy. I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, we're going to talk about the ode to Agatha Christie murder mystery <laughs> from That's Netflix. That I haven't even crossed my mind, but you're right. How did it not cross your mind? I don't know. All I could see was like those dinner parties where you go to a place oh. and then, you know, you figure out who the murderer is uh-huh. and like, that's right. Yeah, you get that's, your little invitation and yeah. it tells you how to dress and what your name is. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, we did those when I was in high school for our theater, like banquet that we did. My husband's always wanted to do it. So we've bought them over the years, but we've never actually followed through. Oh, I don't do know why, but, uh, but we just haven't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's one of those things like going to like the banquet and doing it was fun because somebody else brought you food. Right. You I'd go almost somewhere. like I want it to be catered. I don't mind doing it in my house, but I want somebody else to like bring me food and talk about it I don't reminds- think I could keep character in my own house. Mm. And I think for me, if I want to do it, I want to do it and completely like put on the character. The character. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And so if I'm in my own house, I know that I'm going to have to break character to deal with something practical. But if you go somewhere, you know, yeah. then you can be in character. That's you can, right. you know, you know, the movie clue. I love the movie. <laughs> Sorry. Clue. That's I, random, but uh, uh, no, because yeah. the whole time I'm watching this that, movie, the, I'm thinking about clue. And right. How, like they're very, like if you look, thought Clue was stupid, you probably wouldn't like this movie. If you enjoyed the campy fun that was Clue, you probably really like this movie. Exactly. I just introduced that to my kids recently. Oh, really? Yes, I'm they fell in love. It. Yeah. But how can you not? For reals, man. Come it's on. Fantastic. Anybody who's ever played the game is like, it's the ballroom. You right. know? Well, and you know, the best actors, yes. I mean, they're so good. You know, yes. Tim Curry is. Yes. Always fantastic. Yes, exactly. Always. Steals the show. It's I mean, delightful. everything he's in, he just elevates it so much. You know? Mm-hmm. He's just so good. Yep. <sighs> yep. So, let's talk about this movie. Yeah, I liked this movie. Did you like I, this movie? Oh, I, I've seen it twice now. I really like this movie. <laughs> and it was, you know, it's just dumb fun. And, the, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief about some things. But... I wasn't going into it thinking it was like a documentary of some kind. No. You know what I like about these types of movies is when they're able to put something that's simple without necessarily making it just dumb or relying on silly fart jokes the whole time. Uh You know, they're able to just do some delightful kind of comedy, you know? Well, and there's so many like good little one-liners and them just talking about stuff kind of offhanded or like the other characters can't hear them and they're like, duh, we can hear you. And it was really funny. It helps that both Adam Sandler and uh, Jennifer Aniston, when they're on screen, both of them individually and now together, they're always delightful. No matter yes. what character they're playing, um, as Jennifer Aniston especially, because she has played a lot so of different much. kind of people. Yeah. Um, but she's always just kind of mesmerizing and you just enjoy watching her. And Adam Sandler's kind of the same way. You know, even when he's in something completely silly, he's just got this kind of this, I don't know, jolliness about him that's... <laughs> 
always a little happy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. It was directed by Kyle Nuacek. He was the co-creator of Comedy Central's long-running show Workaholics. So I thought that kind of fit. I've only seen an episode or so of Workaholics, but it's got kind of the same feel. I've never seen it. And so that's, yeah. yeah. I, it's Good to know. supposed to be great, but... I don't know. I've not seen enough of it to really make a determination. Um, He's also directed lots of episodes of popular shows like Parks and Rec and Community and stuff like that. So, oh, it makes total sense that he would direct this. It was written by James Vanderbilt, which is a little bit of a surprise. He's written a couple of the recent Spider-Man movies. One of his big first movies was Zodiac in 2007. Which is a very different movie. Like, compl- like, can't get much more different. No, but that was a good movie. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. You should see that, but yeah. it's nothing like this. Yeah. It's not delightful. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is delightful. It's good, but it's not That's, delightful. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you find that delightful, we urge you to find a mental health professional. Yeah, <laughs> because there may be some things you need to work through. <laughs> Obviously, Adam Sandler stars as Nick, and we have Jennifer Aniston as Audrey. Uh, Luke Evans plays Charles Cavendish. He was Gaston in the live-action Beauty and the Beast. I didn't realize that. I didn't either. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Danny Boone was Inspector de la Croix. He's a French actor, and I know I've seen him in stuff, mm-hmm. but I looked through his IMDb and I did not really recognize most of what he'd been in. So hmm. I, don't, I don't know where I've seen him before. Because he really did look familiar. I know I've seen him in other stuff with his French accent. and I haven't seen him either yeah. in anything else, although he looks familiar. Yeah. He's one of those faces, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as somebody who has one of those faces, I can empathize. You, yeah. Oh, when you I was get... in high school, all the time, you look like my cousin. You look like my friend's cousin. It was always somebody's cousin <laughs> yeah. that I looked like. I'm like, great, thanks. It's I hard know. because, well, you know, what do you say to somebody when they say, hey, you look like somebody that you don't know and will never meet? Right. Like, how like, are you supposed to respond? Thanks. Yeah. I hope. Oh, right? Because that's the nerve-wracking part. You're like, I hope this is a compliment. <laughs> it might possibly be a nice thing to say to someone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or it could be really, really rude. Really mean. <laughs> so who knows? I don't know. Yeah. But people do say that yeah. a lot. I think we're just so um, surprised by our own, like, oh my gosh, there's yeah. two of them in my life, you know, and we want to say something about that, but probably not necessary, y'all. <laughs> No, no, I would say certainly not to strangers at hockey games <laughs> because it was always strangers who told me that it was never like somebody I knew. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was always strangers. Hey, you look like, like, who are you? Who are they? Ha ha. Thanks. Good Have day a great to day. You. Yeah. Yeah. Good. good day to you. Goodbye. <laughs> Olaf or Dari Olafsson, which I'm like. Man, you gotta have some confidence to name your kid Olafur Olafsson. Yeah, I know. That's, That's a, I mean, it's Icelandic. So I guess yes. the. Uh, He's born in Connecticut. Yeah. I read that, which is interesting. So I but, don't know. That's, yeah, but he, yes, he's primarily an Icelandic actor and he played Sergei in Murder Mystery. He also played Ariel 
Helgeson in The Widow, which is on Amazon Prime. I have not seen that. It's really good. It was really good. Hmm. It was it was another one of those that was really good but not delightful. Oh yeah. But okay. I would say if anything was delightful in the show, it was It was him. Olafur. Okay. And he's also gonna be a voice in the Dark Crystal series that's coming to Netflix, which I cannot wait Interesting. for. I'm you can't so, wait, huh? You're excited, so excited, huh? <laughs> I've loved that movie forever. And I can't wait for a series. And then the final credit that I'd like to mention is <laughs> the great looking flight attendant, which is how she's actually credited. Is in, she really? Yeah. Is Adam Sandler's real life wife. It's so sweet. Yeah, I thought it was really cute. It's so sweet. Yeah. In fact, I saw him, um, I think it was, I think it was with Conan and uh-huh. um, he had like a clip of the movie, of course. And, and then that's the one he showed was the little scene where he's with his wife talking, uh-huh. you know, and which I thought was really delightful. And I made notes about that. I'm like, delightful exchange. It was, yeah. it was. And I thought it was just so sweet of Adam because he was, he just wasn't going to miss an opportunity to, yeah. to do that. You well, know? and he wasn't going to miss an opportunity to bill her as great looking flight attendant exactly. either. I'm like, oh, that's sweet. Yeah. That's he's sweet. kind of a sweetie. All right. So shall we recap this? Let's recap. All right. So Nick, Adam Sandler has failed his detective exam yet again. again. Yeah, it's it's sad. And he implores his coworker and friend, whom Nick and Audrey, Jennifer Aniston, are going to have dinner with that night to not tell Audrey, don't tell her that I failed it again, because she thinks that he passed it the first time he took it, which was like three times ago. Audrey, a hairstylist in the tropiest of trope scenes in this entire movie, is complaining to her friends in the hair salon where she works that he hasn't taken her to Europe yet. It's their 15th anniversary soon, like the next day, but they go out to dinner. Anyway, Nick gets Audrey a $50 Amazon gift card and a card and the wrong kind of allergy medication. <laughs> For their anniversary, and Audrey is, after they've gone out to dinner, is aggressively flossing, and Nick asks her about it. Why are you so aggressively flossing? And she busts out with, I want to go to Europe. It's been 15 years. What are we waiting for? And surprise to them both, he says he's taking them to Europe for their anniversary. Yeah, he's all, he turns it around. Like, you just couldn't be patient and wait for the anniversary day. Uh Uh-huh, Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, he hadn't planned it at no. all. There was Lies. Yeah, yeah, big fat lie. But big fat lie. The sweetest of intentions behind it. He didn't want to disappoint her. He didn't want to disappoint her. And to her, to his credit, he follows through. Right. right. Yes. So okay. Yes, because then they, in the next scene, they're on a plane. Yeah, they yeah. go. Yeah. So we don't know how much time has passed, but. Not a significant amount of time, which probably made this trip way more expensive than it should have been. Probably, except they definitely tried to cheap out on some of their uh, excursions, Mm -hmm. if you will. No, yeah, we'll get there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So on the plane, Audrey is reading a mystery novel. She's a fellow lover of crime entertainment, which I like. Yay, Audrey. Nick jokes that the butler did it. (laughs) (laughs) Then Nick falls asleep and Audrey wants earplugs and they cost $9, like highway robbery, but whatever, man. So she sneaks into a higher class cabin, finds a pair of earplugs and steals them off of a 
Like a first class seat. Yeah, a first class seat that's unoccupied. Momentarily, you can tell somebody has been there. Right. So she's headed back to her seat with her pilfered earplugs. She stops to get some nuts in the in the airplane bar and meets a handsome gentleman. They strike up a conversation and he tells her his name is Charles Cavendish. And that name is enough to keep the flight attendant from kicking Audrey out of the lounge that she's not supposed to be in. Yes, he has a heavyweight name. Yes. But he's also got a heavyweight charm. Oh, yes. Very suave. Suave and beautiful and, Mm -hmm. yeah, all the things. When he shares his name, she says he sounds like a character from one of her mystery novels. And he says, what character would I be? And she said, well, with a name like that, you'd have to be the villain. Which is very entertaining. (laughs) Except when they said that, all I could say is, well, he needs little gray stripes on the side. Oh. (laughs) You know? You know what I mean? He's a, little, he's a little too young to be the villain. Yeah, I don't know. He, there's something... He didn't quite, to me, look like the villain. But I guess if I was reading the book and I heard that name, I'd picture something similar, but with, like, you know, the gray on the side of the head. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. A little more aged. Yeah, maybe so. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Okay, so Zoltan, Kazas, uh-huh. Kassas... I don't. I need to learn how to pronounce that man's name because he's one of my favorite comics now. Right, you can find him, but he has this bit about elections, and his first election he voted in was when Mitt Romney was running, uh-huh. and he was like, "I can't he's vote young. for him. I can't vote for." He had like the gray on the side. That's every villain in every cartoon <laughs> ever. He was going to become president and like try to take down Gotham. It was just <laughs> and kill the Ninja Turtles, and I was just like, "Oh my gosh." I, I never thought of it, but he's so right. He does. He looks like a cartoon villain a little bit. Very poor funny. Mitt Romney. I, poor <laughs> Mitt Romney. It was just the most hysterical little bit, anyway. But so I'm looking at this guy, and all I can think is, no, he's got to look. He's got to have the, yeah, the villain stripes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. I digress. So they're chatting. <laughs> Cavendish tells Audrey that he's going to celebrate the wedding of his rich and elderly uncle Malcolm Quince. The Malcolm Quince, which is a name in this universe where right. it's taking place. Not a name we all know. Right. Yeah. To Charles's former fiance. I say she a gold digger. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what we're supposed to understand the entire time. Absolutely. Yeah. So Nick wakes up because he's been asleep and finds Audrey in the bar and Charles invites them to join him to the luxury yacht to celebrate the nuptials of his uncle to his ex-fiance and Nick's not really very comfortable with it and so they agree that they're just going to go on the bus tour that he had already booked. So they get to the airport and they go out to go board the bus and it's a bunch of Americans fighting and children screaming and it's an old nasty bus. Yeah. And they both look at it and they're like... Yeah, we're no. going to go on the yacht. So conveniently, Cavendish is standing right there with his beautiful luxury car that he's driving himself. And they just go get in the car with him. This is one of those things where you just suspend your disbelief. Yes, you just have to go with it. Yeah. So once they're on the boat, we meet this whole cast of characters. This is where it becomes very, the murder mystery. The murder mystery. Right? Very like clue. Yeah, this is yeah. where it becomes that. Yes. Yeah. Susie, Charles's ex fiance and uncle malcolm's new wife toby malcolm's son grace ballard an actress 
Vic, a rich playboy with the title of Maharaja. And it's in a conversation with Vic that we first learned that Nick, because that's not confusing at all, Vic and Nick, (laughs) Nick, the wannabe detective, is a terrible shot. He cannot shoot a gun accurately at all. Poor Audrey just throws him under the bus. Oh, she sure does. Yeah, that was not okay. Yeah. That, that was, was a funny, that was though. an oops. <laughs> it was funny though. What's amazing is how well she pulled that scene off because I'm cringing on on Nick's behalf like the whole time and I'm literally willing her to shut up and I'm like, "What? Well, you know everything she does from the silly movie or whatever, I'm totally in- enthralled." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Colonel Ulenga, who's the Nambian Defense Force official and Malcolm's best friend. Sergei, the colonel's bodyguard and smoking helper, evidently, because Colonel Ulenga has an artificial hand and Sergei pops his hand off and sticks a cigar into the hand. And pops it back so on. So ridiculous. It was so weird and <laughs> gross and cringy and hilarious. Anyway, and then Juan Carlos, who's a Monaco Grand Prix driver. So they come to a gathering. Malcolm's about to arrive imminently. This gathering has an obscene amount of shrimp. <laughs> There's this ornate dagger, the Quince dagger, which was given to the Quince family by none other than Marco Polo himself. Hmm. Uh, Malcolm arrives on a helicopter and then addresses his guests individually and comes to a conclusion. They're all leeches. Leeches, I tell you. The best thing he can do for them is to cut them out of his will so that they can make something of themselves. And he's going to leave it all to his new wife. So Grace, the actress, storms out. Malcolm's about to sign a new version of his will right there in front of them with no attorney present. Yeah. And the lights go out. And the lights go out, as they do. As they do in Murder Mysteries. This is where you suspend your disbelief and you just enjoy it for what it is. Everyone shouts, there's a gunshot, and the lights pop back on. And Uncle Malcolm is dead on the floor with the quince dagger in his chest. The colonel pulls the dagger and and Vic tells him, you should have left it there for the Bobo. (laughs) And so the colonel puts it back. back Oh, so like, whoa. It like made a sound. Oh, it did. It was squishy. It was a moist sound. It was gross. (laughs) But it was very funny. (laughs) I thought it was really funny. It was just one of those moments. Uh-huh. Which is why I mention it. Because it was it's just funny. really funny. And the whole time Nick's like, Bob, no. Uh-huh. Yes. Speaking you know, of Nick, just, he goes into detective mode. He does. He goes into detective mode because he is a um, detective, air quotes included. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. He knows all the answers. He, he just does. freezes on the test. He's yeah. just a poor test taker. So Nick asks the captain to secure the room, call Interpol, and everyone needs to go to their room because one of them is a murderer. Shortly, there's another gunshot. And it's son of Malcolm, Toby, seems to have committed suicide after typing out a confession that he killed his dad. Right. Okay. That's what it looks like. Yeah. So they arrive in Monte Carlo and they meet Inspector De La Croix. He's on the case. And then there's an interrogation scene, which is I thought was great. There's lots of cuts of the 
in uh, the inspector asking questions and different people answering. And I right. thought it was really like fun. And the only that we see some of them lie, we see some of them place dumb. All of them say the only thing that was unusual was the Americans. The Americans. So then the inspector questions Nick and Audrey together. They are his prime suspects, but he doesn't have any evidence to hold them. But Charles Cavendish is providing accommodations for them. So the inspector is keeping their passports, which... I don't know if they can do that, and I couldn't find any information that told me whether or not they could actually do that. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I think if he's holding your passports and says he's not going to give them to you, he can probably keep them. Legal or no. Yeah, I think that's the point, is it doesn't really matter whether they can or not. <laughs> Legality is... Mm, Maybe not so... Yeah, Possession nine-tenths of any law, evidently. So, I guess so. Yeah. That's true. So then the Grand Prix begins, and they talk about how there are three basic motives for murder, money, revenge, and love. Everyone shares their theories about who killed Malcolm, and Nick and Audrey get a note telling them to go to Suite 802. I don't know why they would go. Yeah, I I don't know why they would go, but maybe I do know why they would go. (laughs) (laughs) Because it... They had to go for I mean, the movie to advance. Well, that, that too. That too. <laughs> How do you not go? Well, also true. I mean. I, but I love that Nick is, I need to take a weapon. And so Here's he a lamp. A lamp. <laughs> Which was really funny. So they get to Suite 802 and it's Sergey. And he says that he has to confess the information that he knows about the colonel that the colonel saved Malcolm's life in 1994, but fell into a coma doing that. And when the colonel finally awoke, his fiancée, Madeline, was married to Malcolm. That was his motive to kill Malcolm, was revenge. revenge. Yes. There's a knock at the door, and Sergei tells them to hide, pushes them into a wardrobe, and then we hear gunshots and... Audrey says, where's the lamp? Because <laughs> she made fun of him for his makeshift weapon. Right, but and now then she's all, like, where why, the why, why didn't you bring your makeshift weapon in with us? Come on, man. It was funny. <laughs> Sergey is shot through the door and the couple flee out of a window. They know that it wasn't the colonel who shot Sergey. Because they go past his window on a ledge and see him flossing aggressively. (laughs) Vic and Grace didn't shoot Sergei because they're fooling around. And Nick and Audrey end up at a pub and they see the inspector on television saying that they're murderers and that they are wanted. And this is how Audrey learns that Nick is not a detective. Because he is billed as officer. Uh huh. Yes. Well, and I think he even explicitly says he's not a detective or something like that. I think he kind of does. I think it's fairly explicit, knowing because the inspector knows that Audrey does not know. Right. Because she keeps saying, My husband's a detective. Right. And he's looking at his background check going, "Uh, Uh, No, he's not. Not so much. Not, Not so much. So Audrey's angry. They part ways, but then they both end up at an attorney's office where Charles and Susie are meeting the lawyer about Malcolm's will. Yes, because which one? Which one do they use? Yeah, 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 exactly. Which one do they use? And 
Audrey was on her way with Charles to a villa to hear a reading of the will. But prior to that, they stop at this attorney's office. She goes in. It's like something's weird. She finds Japanese Claritin and Susie is Japanese. And so she goes in to investigate and Nick has followed Susie to this same place. Right. And they're in this library trying to figure out what they're going to do. They get shot at. It's just like death at the library. And then they push over giant bookcases as if that was at all possible. Yeah, exactly. And run. Suspend your disbelief. Suspend your disbelief. It's just a fun movie. But if I ever had the chance to, in a large, really ornate library with giant bookcases... Would you try and push them over? If I was able to, and I was given permission to make that domino happen, I would totally do it. That is so fun and satisfying. It were, yes, it'd it make really a would. huge mess. <laughs> and as long as I didn't have to clean it up, it'd be great. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. They run out into the street and they run into Juan Carlos. <laughs> Why he's there, we don't know exactly. But they're running and chasing and Susie catches up with them and holds them at gunpoint and is monologuing about motives and they don't understand anything and then she gets shot in the neck with a blow dart i mean it's just crazy it's really like shocking yeah yeah by a blow dart dart by a person in a mask Mm -hmm. which i didn't know you could use a blow dart when you were wearing a mask i mean (laughs) you have to be pretty quick with the up and down there yeah yeah Nick and Juan Carlos chase the masked individual and Audrey stays with Susie trying to figure out what she knows, but she's terrible at helping somebody who can't speak actually say things like make, get their point across. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. it was, a, it was, it was not efficient at all. Yeah. So during the chase scene, Nick injures the masked person, but they get away on a moped. So Nick and Audrey are convinced that Charles is the killer. They head to the villa where they were going to do the reading of the will, whatever will was there. Whichever one they were going to do. Yeah, Yeah. whichever one they were going to do. The inspector is about to send out a manhunt for Nick and Audrey. And Nick and Audrey call him and tell him exactly where they're going. And they want him to meet them there, (laughs) which he's very surprised. And it's... Kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. He hasn't seen a lot of American movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's been in a lot of French French movies. They arrive at the villa and they go to confront Charles and he's dead. So now they're like, we don't what know who now? did it. We were convinced that he was the killer and now he's dead. So he can't be the killer. What are we going to do once they kind of decide they're going to fake it till they make it? Yeah. Well, you know what? What do you do? You steal his clothes. Uh Uh-huh. And you get fancy. That's right. Yeah. You you get confidence by stealing a dead man's tuxedo Mm -hmm. and pilfering wardrobes. Listen, 70% how you look, (laughs) 20% how you sound, 10% of what you say. Oh, there you go. There you go. I was like, oh, and look, they found a dress tailored to Jennifer I Aniston. Mean, it's, amazing. it's amazing. They head to the study. They where the four remaining potential heirs are located. They tell everyone, including the inspector, that Charles is dead. And Vic explains, y'all are the miniature Manson family. 
which made me laugh both times I watched this. <laughs> Nick and Audrey lay out what they know, and then Nick looks at Audrey and says, maybe we did do it, because it seems like nobody did it. Everybody seems to have an excuse. So the inspector says that they're lucky that Malcolm died in French territory because there's no death penalty in France. And this reminds Audrey that she had spoken to the colonel earlier. And French law has specific terms about inheritance. Yes. And it precludes excluding children, which is what his... Will would, would have done. Would have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nick had called his coworker back in the States and found the death certificate for Madeline, Malcolm's ex-wife, who had died in childbirth, but they couldn't find a death certificate for the child she'd given birth to. They had assumed that it was a boy, but mm-hmm. no, turns out Malcolm was only interested in a boy and had shuttled off his daughter who survived the birth he has a child grace is this child yes grace is the missing daughter so grace turned out the lights and toby actually killed malcolm so that he and grace could split the money but then grace killed toby out of greed yeah of course money Mm -hmm. yeah so grace admits to being Malcolm's daughter, but doesn't admit to any of the murders. And Grace is wearing a hat. Grace refuses to remove her hat when asked because they are pretty sure she's the blow dart killer because yes. she was in a movie. Where'd she used a blow dart? Blow, blow dart princess. Yeah. <laughs> princess Which, blow dart. Sorry. Thank you. Because that other way does not exactly, well, either way doesn't sound like something you'd find on Netflix. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's more like a late night cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> so they, the inspector snatches the hat right off of her head, and lo and behold, she has an injury to her forehead where she was hit with the plate. And the butler did it just like Nick said at the <laughs> beginning because her mother's last name roughly translated was to butler. butler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But Grace had an accomplice. She didn't do it alone. Juan Carlos, who all this time we didn't think spoke English, hmm. definitely speaks English. Hmm. Juan Carlos takes the inspector hostage and the race car driver steals a police car. Nick and Audrey give chase in a Ferrari with Audrey driving because the well, they steering got in. wheel, they get in and Nick's all excited to drive the Ferrari. Yeah, he's all excited, except uh, guess what? You're in Europe. So uh, uh-huh. she gets into the passenger side, Well, but it's turns out to be the driver's side. side. Yeah, exactly. Very funny. There's this whole car chase through the streets of Monte Carlo. The car chase ends with a wrecked Ferrari, but Juan Carlos can't get away. Yeah. He's, he's wrecked his police vehicle. And so, yay, the inspector is saved, but... Juan Carlos gets out of the car and he's just as he's about to shoot Nick in the middle of the street because what else has he got to lose? Absolutely nothing. He gets hit by a bus and not just any bus, the bus, the tour bus that Nick and Audrey are supposed to be on. It was very funny. It was very funny. It was very funny. So Interpool, who's ready to lock Nick and Audrey up and throw away the key, is grateful that they helped solve the mystery we get no idea who actually ends up inheriting 
Malcolm's fortune. Nope. I have we no have no idea. idea. We have no idea. That is never tied up for us. No. But Interpol is so grateful that they organized a trip and it's on the Orient Express, which is the homage to Agatha Christie. Oh, yeah. Okay. As yeah. Uh-huh. Is, as is the mustache that Adam Sandler sports throughout the movie is a uh, uh, okay. Pro pro right. uh, okay. homage. I gotcha. Yeah. All right. So it's I'm a picking little that like, up. yeah. There's like some subtle, like fun things things that don't really matter. But if you're an Agatha Christie fan, they would Mm -hmm. be things you'd pick up. I only picked them up because I read about them on the internet. Yeah, because I've never read anything from Agatha Christie. No, me either. It got kind of mixed reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not for everybody. No, it's not. But I thought it was really funny and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was funny too. I mean, it was just, you know, it was easy. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Well, and that's kind of what Vox said about it. They said it was a very specific sort of direct-to-Netflix offering. Mm-hmm. And it was really designed to kind of impersonate other movies you've seen mm-hmm. without... Being a direct parody. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, it's not too far off the formula. They didn't do anything too innovative, but it's clever enough to be enjoyable and you just pop popcorn and put on something fun and funny for an evening right that's all it is it, it's easy yeah exactly yeah. this is so funny because you know on uh roger ebert uh, uh roger ebert.com uh-huh. you know um and so brian uh he has a review here and <laughs> it says um it's just entertaining enough to make you wish it was actually good oh <laughs> that's fair <laughs> It's like, yeah, that's, that sums it up that's, right there. That's mm-hmm. that's really like super, super fair. Super fair. Because it didn't have to be good for me to enjoy it, though. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Well, it had to be good enough because ha- if yeah. it had been any worse, oh, then you wouldn't been, be able to get past it. It wouldn't have been fun. Right. But yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's a difference between a legitimate plot hole and just choosing not to address something in the story. That's fair. Right? And they do a good job in these kind of movies. Adam Sandler does a good job in his movies where there's there are plot holes, but really you could have done the movie there. You could have filled in that hole. It would be easy to do, but he just chooses to kind of overlook that. Right. Right? And then he gives you a few precious moments that are kind of like those silly coincidences of life, you know, like the bus at the end, you know, and, you know, that doesn't really happen, but there's not that happening all the time. So right. when it happens at the end, it's a little like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, when it happens all the time, yeah. uh, that's yeah. when it's not good. Yeah. That's yeah. a good assessment. Mm. Uh, on that assessment, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome travelers to the mundane and the arcane, a 5e D&D podcast. I'm Matt, the Dungeon Master, for our new campaign. Uh, I'm Deacon Bishop, and uh, I like to party. I'm Grognag Vagan Smith, and I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm Zenko, and I cast Guiding Light. Come join our party as they explore the river town of Tristolin, fight threats like magical crabs, and rob stores such as Bards and Nobles. We release bi-weekly. Now everyone, I'd like you to roll initiative. Alright, so can it happen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I had to take some liberties with some of the. <laughs> Can you floss too aggressively? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yes. <laughs> yes, you can. You can follow the floss too aggressively. Now, I would say most dentists will say people don't floss enough mm. and often don't floss aggressively enough. Mm. But you can floss too aggressively and it can cause you to have receding gums, tender gums, bleeding, exposure, roots. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, you, if you do it every day, you don't have to do it aggressively. So does it really cost $9 to buy earplugs on a plane? I don't doubt it. Well, it depends on what airline you fly. Mm. If they had been flying Virgin Atlantic, they could have gotten a free relax pack that would have included earplugs and eye shades, socks, a pen, toothbrush, and a toothpaste. Mm. So if you're ever flying Virgin Atlantic... Ask for your free relax pack. Yes, you should do that. Don't pay $9, $9 for earplugs. Yeah, or just, you know, or put on your, your earphones. <laughs> or pack your own. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to be on a flight overnight in economy class. Maybe I should take some earplugs. Or headphones. Or headphones. Yeah. Headphones. Seriously. Yeah. There's all kinds of other things that some... Airlines provide, Hawaiian Airlines evidently provides free alcohol and meals. Yeah, actually, there are a decent number of them do when you're overseas. Yeah. Yes. Uh, So you can get free Wi-Fi or messaging on some. All depends on the airline. Oh, hey, T-Mobile, y'all. If y'all on T-Mobile, then uh, if if your plane has Wi-Fi... Right? Like uh-huh. you can connect and have basic internet surfing and messaging. Nice. You don't have to pay for their package. Nice. That's pretty awesome. It is so pretty awesome. The moral of the story is check what's available on your flight with your, or with your airline for your flight mm-hmm. before you go. Yes. Which, of course, she didn't do because this was all last, last minute. Yeah. yeah. Is there really a Monaco Grand Prix? Oh, there is absolutely a Monaco Grand Prix. It is considered one of the unofficial triple crown events of the Formula One racing. It's an exceptional location of glamour and prestige because what what city were they in? Aren't they in Monaco? Monte Carlo. Oh, they were in Monte Carlo. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Because Monte Carlo is beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, Yeah. And it's held on the streets of Monaco just like around so they and it's got a lot of elevation changes and tight corners so it makes it one of the most demanding formula one tracks because you know you're also trying to not run into buildings or run off a cliff (laughs) or or run off a cliff imagine that and it's the only grand prix that doesn't adhere to the mandated 190 mile minimum distance because it's so Hmm. twisty and difficult it is extremely expensive to go. I looked up ticket prices oh, just no. for fun. Oh, no. So in the worst seats, in the least desirable locations, on the days that mean the le- least to the race, you can get tickets for under $100 per person, which sounds not so That's bad. That's not bad. But if you want better seats and better locations, better days, you're looking at 3 to $500 per person per day. Ooh, that's deep. <laughs> and if you want the VIP terraces in the best locations on the best days, you're looking at about $4,000 a person. What is this? The Super Bowl? 
I mean, I can, it's held like the last week of May. So I'm sure it's like absolutely gorgeous. The weather is probably perfect. It's, you know, sunny. I can imagine being on this terrace and, you know, if you're fabulously wealthy, what's $4,000? Right. Exactly. Nothing. I I can't even imagine. No, me either. But I also couldn't imagine paying that kind of money to watch cars. I just, I can't do it. I'm so glad other people like it. Uh, Me too. Because uh, I would be of no help to them. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, there goes the cars really fast. Look at them go. Can you refill my champagne, please? I seriously would have <laughs> champagne in one hand and like Facebook open on the other hand. Yeah, I wouldn't even see any cars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Are there European bus tours like the one that Nick and Audrey almost took? Um, Sort of. I would say they're mostly a little nicer than what you saw. I think you would probably have to do some work to find something like what they saw. They're usually like pretty big bus touring companies that provide these, like the little mom and pop ones are not particularly available. There are ones that range from luxury. They handle everything for little bitty groups. And then you have mid-range, which offer less stuff and slightly larger groups. And then you have the really low-end pack-a-men. You can, you can get a bus tour for like $150 a day, but you have to be really, really careful about how much they claim you're going to see. Because the more they say you're going to see, the more time you're spending on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> And if you stop in different cities every night, that's an indicator that you're going to spend a lot of time on the bus. So if you're going to spend, they suggest seeing quote unquote less and picking a tour that has you in a hotel two nights in a row, the same hotel two nights in a row, because you're going to actually get to see more of that. So your first night, you'll probably get there, check in, go to sleep then the next day you're going to get a whole day in whatever city that you're in. You spend the night again and then you move on to the next city. That that's a you're going to get more out of a tour like that. You're going to spend a lot less time on the bus. Now, okay, tell me, are you a a tour fan? Do you like doing these kinds of tours, like these uh, scheduled tours? I'm not, I'm not like a big fan of seeing a bunch of stuff all at once, I don't mm-hmm. think. I would rather go and say I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to go to New York City. I'm going to go to yeah. San Francisco and spend my vacation there. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like, I, cause I never sleep well the first night anywhere mm-hmm. ever. It's always sleep in Pill City for me. And yeah. usually sleep in Pill City the entire time we're gone and I can wake up and be fine. Yeah. Because I'm in a different place. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to be. Yeah. In this, I I just want to spend the whole time. How about you? Are you? Yeah, I, I can't stand these kind of tours. No, not at all. all. Especially buses. Oh. oh. Now, I do get a little car sick. Yeah, I think me that too. probably plays a role. I don't enjoy time on a bus at all. I got, I got independence issues too. So, like, I don't want to be. You don't want anybody telling you what to do? No. I can't stand it. I do have a friend who's going on a tour of Italy. But, and it's like a, a tour, like, yeah. but it's just her. She's leaving her husband and children at home <laughs> and she's just going to do this thing yeah. and like eat and drink her way across Italy. Mm. And I think that that would be a little better, a little better. I don't know. I just can't, I can't, uh, 
I don't know. On the one hand, I don't want anybody telling me what I can and can't do. But I also love the idea of somebody saying, here's this option available to you and your food is already taken care of. All you have to do is pick from the things on this menu and here's yeah. a beautiful wine paired with it. I love the idea of that. Well, like, so I can see that. I mean, that's nice. You know, like, that's like a, okay. So you would do better if you were going to do some kind of tour, you would do much better with the luxury tours, which can run up to a thousand dollars a day per person. Probably. But if I have to step book a foot on a bus, no uh, no, go. there's some pretty nice buses. No go. You're like not at no all. No go. Mm. I get motion sickness enough that uh. there is not a moment on a bus that I'm I'm happy. Oh, oh that's yeah, fair. I'm not a moment. I stopped riding the buses to kid field trips. Oh yeah. When my daughter was in kindergarten because we went to the zoo and they were like, please ride the bus with us because we need another adult to help take care of things. And I was like, never again, never mm. again. Never again. I can't. It's hot. People want to talk. I'm not so good at talking on the bus kind of situation. Like, I don't know. It's just not good. Yeah. Maybe a train mm. where it's really easy to get up and walk around. Yeah. You might be able to go converse. So you might do well on the Orient Express. So I could do that kind of thing. <laughs> I could do like the the train wine tour in like California situation. <laughs> and I could do river cruises. Oh, see, and I'm a, like a boat. Nope. No. No go. No, no go. See, uh-uh. No. Yeah, I can no do all kinds of boats. See, you, I, I'm not so against the buses, but I'm not going to be one to ever be on a cruise ship. No? N- not no. even on just a river? No. Nope. Is it no seasickness or is it kind of just like a, it, that's weird? No, it's like seasickness. Yeah. It's like the motion sickness. The particular... Whatever motion sickness that happens on a boat yeah. is way worse for me than a even car. the backseat of a car. Right, right. And I hate the backseats of cars. Mm-hmm. And me too. Yeah. No, I, I would say large, large cruise ships, not a bunch of movement there. Well, like, not a bunch. Uh, even still. Not so much. But the smaller you get, the more you kind of see. You kinda feel, I but I pop some Dramamine. It's all good. Yeah. But you can get up and walk around. That's just the difference. That's you're the not difference. sitting there just being stuck. Yeah. You're doing and you're going and you're at the pool and you're. Yeah. Yeah. You know. What are some cheap ways to travel around Europe? I have seven cheap this, ways to the do The quintessential it. like uh, backpacking through Europe situation. Um, <laughs> yes. Pretty much. They've got uh, three different types of buses that you can take that are indicated here. They also suggest budget airlines. I said you have to be really, really careful, though, because they will, if you make the slightest mistake, they will charge you out the Wahoo and you might as well have just taken a regular airline. Yeah. So if you know what you're doing, you can get really, really cheap fares and fly around Europe. Mm -hmm. You have to maybe go with somebody who really knows what they're doing. I would suggest that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like the idea of any budget airline. (laughs) Yeah. I hadn't heard of any of them except for Norwegian Air. EasyJet, Ryanair, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Eurowings. Yep. I've I don't know with all the trouble that they've had with 737s lately. Oh, um, well, they all have 737s, but likely not as many Max as, you, as right. you think because they have the older ones. But but if you've ever seen the show Air Disasters, <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe not, maybe no budget airline. Maybe not. I, I don't. I mean, you know, that list is pretty stacked over there. Yeah. This one might appeal to you. They have a uh, your rail pass. See now you can take a train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
And then they have a blah, blah car, which is Europe's version of like Uber Lyft, basically. And they said that that one's pretty fun because you can get an inexpensive ride somewhere and meet a local. Yeah, And exactly. that can be kind of fun. Now, now that sounds like kind of fun. And then their cheapest way to travel around Europe, hitchhiking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in the article, they said, hitchhiking is quite common in Europe and safer than you would think. I've met a number of travelers who've done it and have been fine. And I'm like, well, well would you hear for the ones who weren't hello? fine? <laughs> you gotta love that kind of logic, that kind of research. Everybody I've Stellar. talked to is fine. Oh my gosh. You wouldn't talk to the ones who aren't fine because they're dead in a ditch in a foreign country. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Don't hitchhike. But I've heard that it is actually pretty safe because it's normalized there. Don't uh, hitchhike. But I, I don't know that I could recommend that at all. No, I'm I'm not going to hitchhike, and I wouldn't suggest you do it. Either. I definitely wouldn't do it alone. Norm, normal or not, no hitchhiking. Yeah. Okay. Does French inheritance law really require that estates be left to children? See, this is a question I have. Okay. So, sort of. <laughs> They took some liberties with it because they made it sound like the entire estate had to go to the children. Yeah, kind of did. So what it actually is, is that French law prohibits disinheriting your children entirely. So half of your estate goes to your child if you have one child, two thirds if you have two children, and three quarters if you have three or more children. So you're able to designate an alternate heir right for part of it okay but there's certain things you ha- you have certain guidelines based on the number of children you have how you can't just keep them from getting the money that is so interesting i yeah like, I don't, how do you feel about this law on the one hand like Okay, so if you're a deadbeat parent who's not paying child support, if something happens to you, okay, good. You're now your kids are taken care of. On the other hand, what if they're adults and awful and you didn't want to leave them any money? Who's the government to say that you have, have to leave? To. Yeah, that you yeah. have to. I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't bother me because my kids are great. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I exactly. want to, I want to leave them mm-hmm. inheritance, but I can see where somebody else may not. Yeah. I can you know, see that where too. You've got irresponsible people, people who've made poor choices mm-hmm. and you're afraid they're going to piss away everything you've worked for. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you feel like somebody else could use it and need it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But I don't know. spouses are guaranteed a tax free inheritance in the case they never had any children, but the parents of a deceased person, you can disinherit them. So you can disinherit your own parents, but the French law guarantees them the right of return, which means that they can reclaim property that they had given to their children in the case that they've been disinherited. So if they left a house that they gave a house to their child and then you know they went and made it big somewhere and had all this money but hated their parents and didn't leave them any money their parents could go and say well i gave them that house i want my house back right and you know forget the widow and the children mm-hmm. kick them out that's my house now and they can do that it's very so it's interesting a weird 
seems a little invasive, but... It does feel a little invasive. And on the other hand, I could see the merits of the principle. Yeah. Because I think that would do interesting things in the economy overall. Well, it seems like it have maybe a stabilizing effect in some That's ways. That's what I'm thinking. A, a little bit more of a, of a not... Well, and maybe an incentive too to like stay on good terms with your family. Yeah. Well, and it does, it, it kind of creates a safety net in a way. Uh huh. Uh, I mean, this is assuming if you that have you have money, money to leave, right? Yeah, like, if, if you, you don't have money to leave, then it doesn't even if matter. If all you're leaving them is debt, then, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's such a smaller country that what works there doesn't necessarily work in a large population like the U.S. But I'm interested in that principle. Uh Uh-huh. I thought it was interesting. I think it's interesting. They they took a little liberties, but they were kind of of there. Yeah. So it was interesting. See? Simplified. Not Mm -hmm. quite dumbified. Yeah, exactly. Psychology break. Psychology break. In Murder Mystery, they claimed that there were three motives for murder. Money, love, revenge. Are there really? Yeah, those <laughs> those are those are strong those motives. Are strong motives. I would say they're not the only motives. They're not the only motives. I would say you'd have to kind of uh, be more specific. Premeditated right. murder, but maybe probably. it leans a little bit more that way. But premeditated murder is not really the most common. Common, no. and so you know you do see though anger and rage, and they're over these main kind of things you know jealousy mm-hmm. jealousy is a big motive but revenge the way they talk about it it's really jealousy <laughs> yeah you yeah know? well and mm-hmm. yeah love or revenge could both fall under jealousy yeah I you could I, yeah. well it's all wrapped up jealousy and you know what's interesting is is we kind of think of jealousy and envy as the same thing but it's not mm-hmm. those are two very different Right. Different things, but we kind of use the terms interchangeably. It's jealousy, particularly. Well, they can kind of go hand in hand, but they're they, not the same thing. Right. And they people can, confuse that, I think. Yeah, they do. They have a little overlap, but yeah. Yeah. So, goal attainment would be one reason for murder is that human beings believe they have the talent or ability to reach certain desired outcomes. And if we can't achieve those outcomes, ideally, we'd find another way to get there. Right. Or adjust our expectations. But when you feel like you have a lack of control or you don't have the ability to reach the goals, you can Mm -hmm. get frustrated. And murder, while it's awful, it's not really that physically difficult. And Mm -hmm. so some people will commit murder and that will fulfill their need to attain a goal right. because they've committed murder because it's not particularly hard to do because we're fragile. Yeah. 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 And it's hard because that's a love of self, you know, right. in a way. But um, but it's also in their minds, it's a survival. Um, very few people, I think, probably would use that as like a legitimate like, oh, you know, I think logically, this is how I'm going to do that. I'm going to kill this person. Uh-huh. And then it's not so much that. It's yeah. a, it's a it, you feel like you're a threat. That your survival, that this, uh, the lack of attainment of a goal because somebody is in the way threatens your actual survival. It's a very convoluted way of thinking about it, but, well, you know, but hence the murder. Yes. But on the other hand, how many people have, you know, acts of passion when they see a goal, you know, or in self-defense? Yes. Emotional intelligence. So people who commit aggression tend to lack the strategies to be able to deal with their emotional regulation. So instead of 
taking a deep breath and calming down, Mm -hmm. you know, things that we try and teach our kids to help regulate their emotions. You feel it, but don't lash out. Mm -hmm. These people don't have that kind of filter. Yeah. Yeah. They don't understand. Either they are not capable of doing that or they were never taught it, whatever. Right. Gratification. Well, which I think would be like, that would be, you know, money or love or revenge is that you've got payoff in some way. So you can invest time and energy into doing something Mm -hmm. that will give you a payoff and make you feel gratified, whether that's business or a hobby or family or whatever, whatever, whatever. But, you know, that takes a long time. And so some people would rather just commit murder to have this instant gratification. Right. So I would say that's, that it kind of ties in. It's an underlying sort of thing. Maybe a lot, a lot of these are things I think that people wouldn't recognize. Like yeah. the money, love, revenge. Those are things we recognize. These are more underlying sorts of things. Right. The reasons why, you know, the thing behind the thing, mm-hmm. you know. Of course, there are some people out there who are just simply gratified by killing. And so that's the really dark uh-huh. side. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's extremely mm-hmm. dark. So recognition of competence. They want to, they don't necessarily have to have a socially acceptable behavior. You want to be recognized because you did a good job. Yeah, I'm the famous. That's right. I'm Everybody's fa- going to know my name. Yeah, I'm famous or I'm mm-hmm. good at this or I'm good at that. And I want people to recognize that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, if I can't be good at bowling, then maybe I can be good at murder. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know what? I kept failing that psych exam for the, for the police department. So I'll just show them that I'm smarter than them. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing where they taunt, you know, because it they reminds want me of seven a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they want people to, to kind of notice their, mm-hmm. that they're smart or they just simply want to be known. Right. And then, you know, social reciprocity, which is revenge, basically mm-hmm. an eye for an eye. Don't get mad, get even. Yeah. That's yeah. the revenge. Yeah. And there's, I think there's one more that they really didn't talk about and it's okay. ideology. Oh, fair. Ideology does play a role and it, I guess it could fall under goal attainment, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily a personal goal as it is this ideology of how things ought to be. And then there's this kind of hero syndrome of Ooh. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do all of that and... Because it's for the cause. It's a bigger mm. thing. And people can really play that card of I'm a part of a bigger thing. And they can convince themselves that their horrendous and awful actions are furthering something that matters. And it kind of goes to that test. Like, mm. is it okay to sacrifice a few for the good of many? Right. Which is often on the psych exam. <laughs> right. Yes. Don't fail it. <laughs> don't fail it um, or don't put yourself in a position where you need to take it yeah well and you know i mean because if you're a first responder you might have to make that decision if you're right. a surgeon and you've got a bus accident <laughs> that's not good we're not gonna talk about europe and buses let's think of something else <laughs> i don't know like that's a construction fine. worker accident yeah. you have several people in there and you've only got so much resources where do you put your resources knowing that like i can save these five people because i can divide up and do this whereas all five of the surgeons need to work on this one guy you know right. these are horrible decisions it just doesn't make it okay right <laughs> yeah it's not okay it's just crappy yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and you know but 
Yeah. But, but this ideology stuff is uh, pretty big. Yeah. Female murderers have different motivations. Mm. So we're unique. Yeah. <laughs> 51% of us. So what are women's motivations for murder? Men, they are often driven by concealment and jealousy. And in this particular study that they were looking at in Australia, all of them that were doing concealment or jealousy murders were men. And that was closely related to conviction and hate or revenge or thrill murders, Mm. that those were almost all men. Women tend to kill for gain, money, or love. What they perceive as love might not actually be love. Yeah, well, because if it was really love, maybe not murder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For example, women were more likely to carry out a murder that included an insurance payout or um, an asset of some kind or woman following a divorce. Mm. Like if she thinks she's going to be cut out of the will, she might kill the man Mm -hmm. to be able to remain in the will and collect the... Yeah. Yeah. Another form of uh, love homicide, which is different than a lust homicide, not like no sort of sexuality there, where a woman might, because of mental illness, believe that she might kill a child, believing that them living would be a worse fate than death. So like the lady who had the postpartum depression and drowned all her kids in the bathtub, Mm -hmm. she was committing a love homicide because she was ill and she really thought that killing her children was in their best interest. Right. Which is awful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also a mother might take a child's life because she believes that if she kills herself, that her children can't live or they will be completely messed up by her actions. So instead of not doing those actions, she kills the children. Mm -hmm. Women are much, much less likely to commit murder out of jealousy at all. Like they're not, they're not going to usually kill a man because he cheated on them and, you know, they want him back or whatever. That's not, not a woman thing. Women kill out of self-preservation or the ultimate act of love and kindness, Mm -hmm. quote, air quotes there. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, sad. It is kind of sad. Well, and postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis is no joke. No. It's no joke kind of thing. No. Yeah. And that again, that's kind of Mm underdiagnosed. You don't have a lot of OBGYNs. They really rely on women to say, yes, I'm feeling poorly and I need help. Right. Rather than asking the kind of leading questions that might get them there to help somebody who's not in a mental state to be able to admit they actually need help. Right. To get them the help they need. Yeah. It's just, it's tough. You don't want to be too invasive. You don't want, you want want to believe people when they say, I'm doing fine. Mm-hmm. You want to believe you don't it. Want, you don't want to say, oh, are you really doing fine? Because that sounds demeaning too. Mm-hmm. It's, so it's, a, it's a really tough line to walk. Well, and then it's hard because you have sort of the baby blues, you know, which is not postpartum depression, but right. also very common just to kind of, and it's, 
it's common almost to all women after having a baby, just because it's hard. You're in pain, you're recovering, you're not well, sleeping. You, a, you know, it's just like a... Oh. Well, and you have uh, hormone yeah. fluctuations that aren't normal for you. Right. So you might feel euphoric and then very sad. Yeah, it's just kind of, ah, uh, you know, and then you have the depression, which is kind of that overwhelming. And then you have the psychosis where you actually kind of break from reality. And that's where you get the drowning, um, babies, drowning babies and things of that sort. So yeah. it's just, um, it's really hard. And it's hard to predict it. Although there are mm. some stats out there that show some associations. Okay. You know, for instance, for instance, it's more associated, you know, so Postpartum depression and psychosis are more associated with uh, women who had to try very hard to have a child. Okay. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Who want it more. Yeah. The ones who want it the most are most likely to have an issue afterwards. Well, and that's kind of what the research says. Yeah. Close. It's most closely mm -hmm. associated with it. And, you know, there's been some other studies that kind of break it down further that, but in, in a very general way. Fertility treatments, do you think? No, um, it was it, just... it was associated with uh, expectations. Oh, um, the idea of identity. I'm okay. a mom. This is what I was born to do. This is what it's going to be like. You kind of have all and of this idea, and then you have a child, and you're like, "Oh, this what? is way different than I thought it was going to yeah. be." Oh, yeah, um, that's interesting. The idea that you know you can control so much, or I'm never going to do that. I'm never mm -hmm. going to do that with my child, and then you know all of these kinds of things. But you know the expectations leading up to it, and then kind of realizing that after you have a child, it's one thing to say that I, mothering is my gift or my talent, but to make it such your identity, and then you have a child, and you realize, oh, I'm still here. Uh huh. I still have a self. Yeah. And you've ignored that self for a long time. And then you need yourself because you have to stay sane. <laughs> and then, you know, it kind of, yeah. so like, and these are not like super strong, like causal directional kind of things. It's just that, you know, there's other things that are probably even better predictors. Mm. But in general, yeah. you know, if you have someone who's been trying for a long time, you might tech on them more. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah. you think it would be like the ones who are like, what? Yeah. Well, I'm pregnant. What? Yeah. You know, that those are the ones, but, um, it's interesting. There's a loose it's tendency. different than you'd think different than you might think. All right. So real life, real life, Audrey expected Nick to anticipate her desires without him telling, without her telling him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's an unfair expectation. Unfair. You should not expect your partner to read your mind. If you want something in particular, like a trip to Europe, talk to your spouse about it. Don't just stew about it for 15 years. Right. That's good. Don't expect your partner to never make a mistake. They, they're humans. Mm -hmm. They make poor decisions sometimes, just like you do. Uh, don't expect your partner to have your li their life together. She kind of expected him to pass the, mm. the exam, which was a fair expectation because she'd helped him prepare and he knew all the material, but he just wasn't able to take the test in an effective manner. I don't know if he saw her as having her life together and he felt bad or he just didn't want to disappoint her. I don't know, but that kind of seemed germane. Yeah. A little pride on his end. Yeah. Because once she found out, you know, she was kind of like, you could have told me. Yeah. I would have helped you again. I would have been there. So it was a little unfair to her that he lied to her. Right. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, I Don't see why you did yourself. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By and large. Yeah. That's good advice. 
what should you expect from your spouse? You should expect affection, which is different than sex, mm-hmm. you know, like kind thoughts, compassion, respect, consideration, their time, that they have interest, that they're generous with you in ways that matter, not just monetarily, but with their expectations and different things. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things you can expect, but don't expect them to be mind readers. No. The colonel pulled the dagger out of... Out of Malcolm's body. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't uh, preserve the crime scene. So technically, preserving the crime scene doesn't happen until the police arrive. But if you're at a crime scene prior to the police arriving, try not to mess it up. Right. Yeah, just maybe don't touch things. Yeah. Don't pull anything out of a body. Oh my gosh! At all. I mean, hopefully you're never in uh, at a crime scene with a body. Yeah. Let's not, start there. I mean, let's hope not. But if you are, don't touch the body unless you think the person's still alive and you can help them. Right. Like if you're trying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in that if case, don't pull the dagger out. Da- even then, yeah. <laughs> don't pull the dagger out. You let a. Per- a professional at the hospital pulled the dagger out. Yeah. You can cause way more damage. Way more damage. Way more. So, you know, you got to pay a particular attention to things that are on the floor because those are the kind of things that most easily are disturbed or messed up or contaminated. This is one I hadn't thought of. Don't ever use the telephone. Like if you have a home landline telephone at the scene, don't use it. Don't use it. Okay, but, why? But because you can uh, you don't want to have a phone call go out that they're then later going to look at the phone logs. Oh, and okay. you know, if somebody had who was whose fingerprints are on it, don't use the phone. It can be a good place for uh, mm. DNA. It can be a good place for fingerprints. You can make it harder for them to kind of You can make it harder for them to distinguish what's what. Mm-hmm. So don't use the phone. And uh, this is another one I hadn't thought of, was that uh, no investigator of any kind, be it police or civilian, should ever be left alone while processing the scene. Well, yeah. Which I hadn't really thought of because not only could they intentionally or unintentionally contaminate something, but if the suspect hasn't been apprehended, they might still be in the... At the crime scene. Yeah. Or they could be Dexter and like yeah. manipulating stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's totally what I thought of. And then they're like, no, no. If the, if the safety of the, yeah. Okay. The safety that of makes the sense. But we went straight to Dexter. Oh, I went straight to Dexter. Yeah. Yeah. Don't Absolutely. leave him alone. So, and Nick took a lamp as a makeshift weapon. <laughs> what are some other makeshift weapons? What are some other well, ones? What's the best one? I wonder. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if what there is the best one. Mace. Well, but that's not a makeshift that's weapon. That's not really a makeshift. What would you okay, take? So they take, uh, well, I don't know. I might, well, I kind of like anything you can hit people with mm. and not have to get too close. So I I don't know. A lamp. 
Oh, well, like, you know, that's a, that's a little close for me. <laughs> so this article recommends keys in between the fingers, oh, but no, you have yeah. to get that to way get too very close. close and you have to punch them in the face. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And just like, I don't want to be that close. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have mace. Right. Well, definitely. Yeah. If I was in my bathroom and I or in my room or in my house, I guess, and I could get somewhere to my bathroom mm. or my room, this is my weapon of choice. Definitely always have a lighter okay. because I like to light candles. Okay. And I always have hairspray. Oh, you're going to have a flamethrower. That's exactly right. That is my go-to like, oh, I will take care of this situation. Uh-huh. I will light the house on fire. Uh-huh. Yeah. That works for spiders too. Oh, it does. Yeah. And I've done that many times. <laughs> I, and you'd be surprised how many times those little suckers will just keep burning. And I'm like, how? They keep what running around as they burn? I mean, oh, no. They stop pretty quickly. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think their brains just poof, you know. But oh. their little bodies can burn for quite a while. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that like a newspaper or magazine rolled up can mm-hmm. make a really effective weapon. Oh, really? Like you roll them up really tight. So if you're carrying around a magazine, you can roll it up and it becomes pretty hard. hard. You can hit somebody with it, but the end is also blunt, but also sharp enough to be painful. So if you hit somebody in the eye or the groin with the end of it, it's going to be pretty painful. It's going to give you a chance to get away. That's true. Um, An umbrella. No, that's that's a good choice. If you're you out get, and about, you got to be careful because a lot of them are made from pretty flimsy materials, you know, or they're meant to kind of flex and give a little bit. So if you're in a windy situation, right. you know, it'll flex and give and, you know, you don't want to accidentally hurt yourself. Um, they suggested a cane mm-hmm. because hello, Stalin with your cane, but yeah. you might have to fake a limp. I mean, but- even we are our president yeah. from way like, well, who was it? Oh, my husband's going to kill me because I've forgotten who it was who beat off his uh, attacker with his cane. Oh, I don't <laughs> remember. Ah, I'll have to look it up later. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. A cane is a good choice. Mm-hmm. I, I keep a baseball bat not too far oh, away. There you go. Pen or pencil mm-hmm. can be effective, especially if you're hitting somebody. Yeah. And it always reminds me of, um, I think it was the Joker. I saw this little, uh, ooh, it was violent and awful, but also kind of fascinating. That's <laughs> so much we talk about on the show. is violent <laughs> and awful and also sort of fascinating. The Joker had put a pencil. That's going to be our t-shirt. <laughs> Right there. That's the t-shirt. Violent, offensive, and fascinating. Yes. Yeah. Where he had a pen or a pencil and he like smacked somebody's head down onto it. And oh, it was awful, but interesting. A briefcase. That'd be a normal sort of thing to be carrying Mm. around, but even an empty one can be an effective club. Mm -hmm. Cuticle clippers, if you end up in your bathroom, <laughs> they're very, they're really sharp. They're yeah. deceptively sharp. Yeah, so they are. that would be good. Mm-hmm. And then this one I hadn't thought of, a belt. Oh, yeah. Right? I hadn't thought if you, you know, and they, they it's say. It's kind of close. Yeah. It's a little close, but it's not as close as keys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have a big buckle, mm-hmm. you can hit somebody or smack at them at least enough to, like, give you some space to get away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they did point out, make sure that if you're going to be in a situation where it's even possible that you might use this, you want to be wearing pants that aren't going to fall down. Well, that's true. <laughs> you pull your you belt don't want to take your belt off and then be like, <laughs> like I can't 
or run away because my pants are around my ankles. Boy, <laughs> if that's the case, you better have a plan, you know, like fireman style. Jump out of those suckers and go Charlie's Angels, you know, like... <laughs> I'm sexy and resourceful. That's right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's funny how I think women are the only one who think this way, really. Or just, you know, not quite detectives. Well, so my, my husband and I had gone out for a date night and we parked in a parking lot uh-huh. and he chose a parking space and I had to take the opportunity to kind of say, just so you understand, this is the type of parking space that I would never choose if I was by myself. And he's like, what? Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about that. You never think about those kinds of things, but this would be a dangerous situation and I would never park here. And I was like, just kind of an FYI. You know, like these, we are always on guard with this kind of stuff. So I'm always kind of looking around for, yes, you know, where am I? What's, what's my situation? And then what I do I have at my disposal? If there's a panel van, I'm oh, not yeah, parking not even, next to it ever. Never. 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 Because yeah. I've just seen too many mm-hmm. fictional and real accounts where somebody got pulled into a panel van. Yep. Well, and where we had parked, we parked at a parking spot. And it was in a lot downtown, right? In a lot. But it was against a row of like pretty thick hedges. <gasps> oh, nope. Right? Mm-mm. Not a chance. Nope. Not a chance. Of course, your best weapon is absolute confidence. Right. Well, yes. You got to walk around, notice people. Uh-huh. You know, you got in the eye. You gotta, yeah, because you, then you can identify mm-hmm. them later. Yeah, and they know it. Yeah, and a, a little bit of just like I'm good. Yeah, I'm good here. Yeah, don't look. Don't you know? Yeah. And and that's horrible because you know, like I teach my kids that. Yeah, if you're walking, you're walking the dog in the neighborhood. I don't care where you are. You need to have confidence about where you're going and what you're doing, and that also makes them. Keep paying attention to where well, they are and what they're it doing. It makes you not you an know. easy target. It does. And really, that's mm-hmm. that's the biggest thing is how can I make myself not an easy target? You wear a crossbody purse. Right. You look confident. You look people in the eye. You're not distracted on your phone. Yeah. You're, you say something to people. People all the time like, you're so friendly. And I'm like... Part of it's self-preservation. Mm. Naturally, I'm a friendly yes, person. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And I, te- you know, I tend to be like, "Hey, let's chat." Mm-hmm. Random stranger in the store in line. I'd as long rather... as they don't tell you you look like somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as long as they're not creepy about it. No, whatever, man. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fairly chatty, but I also kind of fairly reserved. Mm-hmm. I don't. I know. mean, there's the fine line between being creepy mm-hmm. and being friendly, right? And, yeah. but it is, it really is part of it is self-preservation. And I don't think for a long time I recognized that about myself, that right. that's what that was, mm-hmm. was, you know, looking to people and talking to people makes me not a target that's because true. I can identify them. Oh, wait, she's nice. I don't want to do anything mean mm-hmm. to her. Or if somebody's watching you, they automatically know that there's people who have just seen you. Yes. And they're going to remember. Yes, exactly. And so that's not. Yeah. Oh, no. They're going to they're gonna recognize her because she looks like that guy's cousin. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to remember her. Remember her. <laughs> All right. So oh. next time a movie, neither you nor I have seen. And it is a gap in our crime entertainment education. It is. We are remiss for not having seen this we're, already. We're going to visit the dude in the Big Lebowski. Woohoo! Woohoo! Yeah! So, Finally going to watch it. Yes. So join us. 
a couple weeks. We're so glad that you joined us today. Don't forget, if we missed something, if you have a favorite improvised weapon that we should know about, I absolutely want to hear about it. And you should find us on the social media. You can find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, the intersection of crime and entertainment. You can send me an email. Yeah. Killer Fun Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and then uh, we'll then we'll post what you say. Yeah, we'll post what you say, or we'll give you a shout out on the pod. Absolutely. I'm always looking to give people a shout out on the pod. So yeah, you know, tell us, give us some feedback, and I will absolutely say your name. You can be internet famous for a little bit. <laughs> yes. All right. So seriously, go post. Tell us what what your favorite uh, improvised weapon of choice is, and we'll see you soon. Forge audio. Dream it. Build it. Share it.